0: Reflections on Dante's Purgatorio by Gil Bailey and produced by The Cornerstone Forum, Part 1. What I want us to take a look at, I want to superimpose uh, what was happening to Dante at the beginning of the Inferno, what was happening to Dante at the beginning of the Purgatorio, and what is happening to us as we begin whatever it is we're about to begin and to see how those things might uh, relate to one another. And so I want to start with uh, two poems, one a 20th century poem and the other one from the Divine Comedy. Uh, The first one is from Lewis Simpson, a very short poem by the American poet Lewis Simpson. There is no way out. You were born to waste your life. You were born to this middle class life as others before you were born to walk in procession to the temple, singing. The second one is the first, famous first lines of the Divine Comedy, the canto one of the Inferno. When I had journeyed half of our life's way, I found myself lost in a dark wood. For I had lost the path that does not stray. Well, in Dante's image, he talks about having journeyed half of our life's way. He's using a chronological uh, reference. In Lewis Simpson's poem, he speaks of being trapped in a middle-class life So he's using a socioeconomic reference. But I like to think that in in Dante's chronological reference, there's at least a hint of a sociological one. And in Simpson's sociological one, there's at least a hint of a chronological one. And that together they might both indicate or point to some condition of being stuck or lost in the middle of it all. and that that is the condition to which the Divine Comedy is trying to respond. And I want to call attention particularly to the phrase, which I have turned into a little mantra from the Dante passage, I found myself lost in a dark wood. I found myself lost. And we could we could inflect the different words in that phrase uh to get the to, to 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 extract the layers of meaning in it. I found myself lost. I found myself lost. What is the condition in which I find myself? How is it that I can find myself? Where is it that I find myself? Lost. That is where, when I find myself, I find myself. I found myself lost. And what I found that was lost was my self. And it was lost. And if it was lost, the only place I could find it was where it was lost. It's as though by recognizing our lostness, we begin the process of finding out who we are and where we are and where we ought to be. It is for Dante the recognition of his lostness that starts the divine comedy. It's not as though he just got lost. What's new is that he has just recognized his lostness. And, of course, we have these great strategies, we human beings, for camouflaging the lostness or, uh, or gussying it up in some way so that it doesn't seem to be lostness at all. I found myself lost in a dark wood. Per una selva oscura. In a dark wood, the Italian is per una selva oscura. And the American poet Robert Duncan said that the Italian, Peruna Selva Oscura, quote, must have for our English speaking ears a ghost of the word self in selva, and always comes to mind with the echo of the meaning in a darkness of self. Sin means the Greek word. Hamartia means miss, to miss the mark, or better, I think, miss the point. A life of missing the point is a life of sin. Walker Percy has that great phrase that connotes it for him, I think, falling into the pit of the self. It's as though, uh, to put it in an understatement, the deep paradox of selfhood is not immediately apparent. The deep paradox being that you have to lose your life in order to find it. I found myself lost. And what I found that was lost was my self. And what it was lost in was the self. The pit of the self. Now, are we sufficiently uh, prepared for the purgatory? No, we're not. There's some more things we have to do. We have to stay with this being lost in the self a little bit. William Blake in his poem Milton said, I will arise and go forth for the morning of the grave. That's his Blakeian pun on the word morning here. I will arise and go forth for the morning of the grave. I will go down to the sepulcher to see if morning breaks. I will go down to self-annihilation and eternal death, lest the last judgment come and find me unannihilate, and I be seized and given into the hands of my own selfhood. C.S. Lewis says, there, in the end, there are finally only two groups of people, those, to whom, those who finally say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God exasperatedly finally says, Okay, then, Thy will be done. And the latter group are in hell. So, falling into the hands of one, being seized and thrown into the hands of one's own selfhood uh, is to inherit that phantom self which is the self-image, which is the real enemy of selfhood. Well, to be seized and given into the hands of one's own selfhood, which turns out finally to be the self-image, which is the enemy of real selfhood. And the self-image is some shabby little compromise anyway, isn't it, between something that really is and that world out there that wants it to be whatever it wants it to be. Sebastian Moore defines The English Benedictine defines sin as seeing one's life through other people's eyes. Okay, so that's the problem that starts the inferno. And Dante uh, wants to get out of this dark wood, as we all do, and he chooses to go up the nearest hill, as we all do, the one that seems to have a little light coming up behind it as though the sun might come up any moment. And so, as we all do, He starts up the little hill and he then is confronted with this beast and he describes it this way, and almost where the hillside starts to rise, look there, a leopard, very quick and lithe, a leopard covered with a spotted hide, he did not disappear from sight but stayed, indeed, he so impeded my ascent that I had often to turn back. Now the leopard with the spotted hide is Dante's allegorical creature uh symbolizing uh, incontinence, or let's put it more pointedly, lust, concupiscence. He wants to start up that little hill, but here is the monster of lust. Now in terms of Dante's own existence and ours, and in terms of Dante's uh, cosmology, moral cosmology, Love is what makes the world go round. And lust is some, is some uh, perversion of the basic energy of life. Somebody once said, uh, he said, love is to lust what uh, salt water is to a man dying of thirst. So Dante confronts lust and he turns back. And Virgil says you can't go up from here you have to go down. And we must go this other way and they start down and they go into into hell. Halfway through hell the great crisis of the inferno is faced. And by the way Dante used the Divine Comedy not just to report on his transformations but to bring them about. Bring them about. This poem was Dante's prayer wheel. So that what happens in the poem is intimately connected to the very transformations in the author of the poem. It is not simply a record of the event. So in the middle of the inferno, there is this, I detect at least, a stagnation. The poem comes uh, comes adrift, and it doesn't seem to be going any place. And it's as though Dante is trying to break it into its next phase, and he can't do it. And finally, Right in the middle, practically, of, of the inferno, there is this startling passage. Around my waist I had a cord as girdle, which it, which, with which once I thought I should be able to catch the leopard with the painted hide. The leopard comes back again. And after I had loosened it completely, just as my guide commanded me to do, I handed it to him, knotted and coiled. At this he wheeled around upon his right, and cast it at some distance distance from the edge. There's a great question about now, what's going to happen now? The cord, as you'll remember, was the symbol of Dante's Franciscan vows, third order of Franciscan, but he's but he's using it in a more symbolic way. The vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, but we're told in the poem that the that the inflection is on chastity. He had hoped with this cord to snare the leopard with the spotted hide. He had tried by taking a vow, by an act of muscular discipline, to overcome the monster of lust. And this had been a a successful strategy. It had been a successful adaptation until he got halfway into the inferno and he simply could not go any deeper or further under that dispensation he could not take that adaptation any further it would not go this this is the supreme i think literary image for move for for the point at which moral life moves beyond the strategy of repression virgil says take the cord off and throw it into the pit and then you will see something about your previous moral rectitude that you have not wanted to look at. And what he saw coming up out of that pit was the monster of fraud. Hello. Huh? The monster of fraud. The psychological, the name for psychological fraud is repression. And one of the people defrauded is the the person himself. And Dante had to move beyond that. And the great crisis of the inferno is that he moved beyond that. And remember the leopard now. That is what he was worried about. Because that, that is the perversion of love. And he hadn't come to grips with it quite yet. And it's wonderful the way Dante describes. Suddenly the poem takes on tremendous energy. Dante describes this monster that comes up. That's why the poem and the, and the experience are obviously so connected. This, it, it says what, what Buber said about, about uh, some of the passages uh, in, in the book of Exodus. Buber says, these are not insights born at the writing desk. <sighs> well, likewise... This is something profoundly happening to Dante and the poem takes on tremendous energy and it come, you, you begin to see these flashes of insight like this describing the monster. The monster rose like one returning from the deep from having worked loose an anchor snagged on something at the bottom. Fabulous description of the moving beyond repression and suddenly the anchor is loose And things begin to move. They don't always move the way one would want them to move because here it is, that monster one's facing. Moral rectitude cannot be achieved any longer beyond that point by an act of muscular external discipline. Remember those lines that we quoted this last summer from the Anthony Heck poem, The Feast of Stephen. He says, think of those barren places where men gather to act in the terrible name of rectitude focused by some hard and smothered lust. To try to achieve moral rectitude by repressing it is to cause that monster to grow ever more heinous. And so he goes down to the bottom of hell where he sees psychic numbing and lovelessness and he comes through on the other side. Now, those are only two images out of the Inferno, but they are the two that I think are echoed so much in these first two cantos of the Purgatorio, which I want to touch on briefly. First of all, pur- Purgatory, uh, I'm not going to get into the, this steamy theological hothouse that produced the doctrine, uh, but as this doctrine has become more and more theologically uh, embarrassing it has become more and more spiritually and psychologically uh, apropos and Dante is the one who has uh, who has uh, uh, made the doctrine indelible on our imaginations and so for Dante it is not a uh, a a place under the earth it's a mountain it's the seven-story mountain and it is not a penal place it is a purgative place there is suffering on purgatory but it is not punishment and so they arrive at the foot of purgatory or almost at the foot of purgatory there's an appeal to the muses I'm gonna skip most of this he notices that there is a a, there's a celestial body prominent in the sky and it is of course Venus. It gives another hint. There's been some movement, has there not? Notice the movement. The important movements so often have to do with this transition from lust to love in the deepest sense. And there's Venus. And next to Venus are these four very prominent stars. The symbolism of them is that they are the four cardinal virtues: prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. The 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 four Secular virtues, if you think of the sacred virtues as being the theological ones of faith, hope, and charity. These are the four secular or Roman virtues. And that and they are the ennobling virtues that are necessary but insufficient in a, in a Christian cosmology. And Dante then sees an old man. Veglio solo. An old man alone. And our translator, Mendelbaum, has translated that phrase, Veglio Solo, as solitary patriarch. And he defends his translation uh, well, and I think the larger point is that this old man who is Cato, the Roman political figure who was the enemy of Julius Caesar, who was a suicide, who was a pagan, he had a lot of marks against him. He could easily have been tucked away in several places in hell. Dante dusts him off and puts him here at the base of purgatory as almost as though he's a one-man limbo. That is to say, purgatory has no limbo, but it has this one limbo-like figure who does not climb the purgatorial mountain. He is not allowed into the beatific vision. He has to suffer that limbo existence like the limbo inhabitants uh, in the inferno. But he has this special place here. And I think when Mendelbaum calls him the patriarch, that puts that that underscores something. He is the o- Old Testament figure in the generic sense, not in the sense of the Hebrew Scriptures, but in the generic sense. He represents the old man as opposed to the new man. But he represents the very highest that could be accomplished in terms of the old man. And this is because Dante's... Uh, a version of his life came from the Roman poet Lucan, who had a highly idealized picture of Cato. Cato was uh, certainly noble enough, but Lucan's uh, rendition of it is highly uh, flattering and idealistic. And so Dante had read that and said, this is the man who represents as far as you can go with purely secular virtues, the cardinal virtues or the Roman virtues. And he has a place, we'll see it in just a minute, he has a very important role to play at the beginning of purgatory. And he is really the personification of these virtues, which which the text immediately makes clear. It says, The rays of the four holy stars so framed his face with light that in my sight he seemed like one who is confronted by the sun. So, These cardinal virtues are illuminating his face. He is the he is the personification of them, and he confronts Virgil and Dante, and he says, "How did you get here?" Everybody else comes with the angel boatman across the sea. How did you get here? And Virgil says, "I do not come through my own self. There is excuse me. There was a lady sent from heaven." Her pleas led me to help and guide this man. And that lady, of course, is Beatrice. And then there's a phrase not long after that, which I want, again, it's almost a mantra, particularly the way Mandelbaum has translated it. Virgil says to Cato, the only road I could have taken was the road I took. The only road I could have taken was the road I took. And I think this, we're not here to determine what what Dante's intentions were, but we might as well uh, attribute to him, uh, any insights we have to this poem, we might as well attribute to him, uh, because we wouldn't be having them without him. The only road I could have taken was the one I took. seems to me that's here as a way of saying, at the base of the purgatorial process, This is no time for gainsaying what has happened. This is no time for sitting around and wringing one's hands. And this is no time for regrets. This is simply time for the transformation. However random it was and however morally colorful it might have been, it got you here. The only road... I could have taken was the road I took. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And he says, Virgil says of Dante, he goes in search of liberty, liberta in the Italian, and of course in our day that has been politicized, that term. We think of liberty as a political concept. except perhaps it's seeped back into theological concerns with the word liberation. We now have a theology of liberation. We have liberation theology. What he wants to become free, what he needs to become free of, is arbitrary self-will, which is what most people define as freedom. And then Virgil says to Cato, Cato, in his life, was married to a woman named Marcia. And Marcia made a brief appearance in limbo, in the inferno. And Virgil says to Cato, I am from the circle where the chaste eyes of Marcia are, and she still prays to you, O holy breast, to keep her as your own. For her love, then, incline to us. Allow our journey through your seven realms. I shall thank her for kindness you bestow if you would let your name be named below. And Cato responds, While I was there within the other world, Marcia so pleased to my eyes, each kindness she required I satisfied. Now that she dwells upon uh, beyond the evil river, she has no power to move me any longer. Such was the law decreed when I was freed. But if a lady come from heaven speeds and helps you, as you say, there is no need of flattery. It is enough indeed to ask me, excuse me, to ask me for her sake. In other words, so, awkward. The, The commentaries on this are also awkward in my estimation. I think the way to see this is to recognize Cato as worthy of great respect because he is the highest that can be accomplished relying solely on the cardinal virtues. But the other three virtues have other capacities. And so the way to see this strange comment by Cato about his beloved, Marcia: she no longer appeals to him. She no longer has that connection. And he says, if you want to appeal to me, use the heavenly lady, not the earthly one. So I think the comparison for us here is between Cato and Marcia, and Dante and Beatrice. Cato is an old man, a patriarch, an Old Testament figure in that generic sense, as opposed to a new man. And he is a Roman, and the great Roman ideal is Aeneas. And Aeneas, the great image there, is Aeneas must leave Dido at Carthage in order to go and be about the great historical work, which is man's work, that is to say, virtuous work the word means manhood so virtue required that the woman be left behind and so Cato is the personification of that and he now looks back and says as Aeneas did with Dido she must be left behind the earthly woman must be left behind And thereafter, one can appeal, if one wants, to the heavenly woman. For Dante, the earthly woman is the heavenly woman. The beloved and the historical task are identical. He's the new man in that sense. And while we're speaking of this, let me just pause and go back a minute to the La Vita Nuova, which is where Dante began this great journey of his. And it happened when Beatrice died. Dante was a young man and it demolished him it was the it was it per, it performed the it performed the self-annihilation that Blake talks about when Beatrice died and Dante roamed about the streets of Florence weeping and and emaciated and and all his friends were whispering and he's walking down the street one day and he looks up in this window overhead Looking down onto the street, and in the window is this beautiful woman looking down on him with great compassion. And he looks up, and their eyes meet. And what would you do? Well, you know, the monks would go home and take a cold bath. Dante went home and wrote poems. And he worked through this with the poems. And he gradually came to understand the lady in the window, the compassionate lady in the window, as the temptress. He needed to stay with that image of Beatrice. Paul says of Jesus, he, or of Christ, you must die with him in order to share in his resurrection. And for Dante, Beatrice, without question, is the feminine Christ. Now, theologically, we could quibble about it, but psychologically, I think there's absolutely no question about it. She is the feminine Christ. And he stayed with the image. He did not have to, and when the great historical task confronted him, which was to speak the great truth of life, he did not have to leave Dido, leave Beatrice, and go do it in some Roman virtuous way, Beatrice was the great historical task. Coming to grips with that passion was the essence of life. And you begin to see how it all relates to the leopard and the lust and the love and all of that is all wrapped up together. And I mention that simply because Cato and Marcia are here, I think, as a foil for that. And, of course, it's not the last time that issue comes... uh, to the foreground in, in human history. Wallace Stevens' poems are sometimes terribly brutal. They're so erudite that a lot of people read them and don't realize how brutal they are. But Helen Vendler realized it and she wrote a commentary on some of Stevens' poems. And she said this, the expression, she spoke about these brutal poems, she said, they are an expression of an anger that a mind so designed for adoration never found adoration and sensuality compatible. They remained locked compartments, a source of emotional confusion and bitterness. In the end, however, and you see, that's why Stevens is really Cato. In the end, however, Stevens' unwillingness to abandon either of his two incompatible truths, and this is why Stevens is dante the truth of desire and the truth of the failure of desire, he would not abandon either of those. Comfort counseled that he abandoned one or the other, you see. Peace of mind demands that one abandon one or the other. He would not de- abandon either the truth of desire or the truth of the failure of desire. And therefore that led him to a great amplitude of human vision not granted to those who live more comfortably in body and soul and to a truth-telling ease not granted to those who have fewer difficulties to confess. It's a masterful passage in Venler's critique of his poems. But I mention it as an allusion to this same problem that's coming up here with Dante Beatrice, Cato Marcia, and how does one respond to it? Well, that's really an aside. Cato says to Virgil and indirectly to Dante, Go then, but first wind a smooth rush, or I, I prefer to use the word read, Wind a smooth reed around his waist and bathe his face to wash away all, hell, all of hell's stains, for it would not be seemly to approach with eyes still dimmed by any mist the first custodian angel, one from paradise. This solitary island all around its very base, there where the breakers pound, bears rushes or reeds on its soft and muddy ground. There is no other plant that lives below, no plant with leaves or plant that, that as it grows hardens, and breaks beneath the waves' harsh blows, a great line in Chardy's. That last great line, Chardy translates, "For what lives in that buffeting must bend." The reeds are at the. You see, the whole of the, purg- the whole purgatorial mountain is the liminal place, the in-between place, the place, the intertidal place, the place that is eith- neither land nor water. You see, it, symbolically. And so these reeds are symbolic of the whole purgatorial dilemma. To be green and alive and growing, but neither leafy nor, nor wooden. Because leafiness would be washed away and woodenness would be broken. So the, the, the proper preparation for the purgatorial process is suppleness. Is suppleness. Flexibility. Flexibility. To become a gentleman. We've lost sight of the root of that word. But the key thing here, obviously, is that Dante's getting a new belt. Huh? A new belt now. No longer that old discipline, but something much more natural and supple. He's moving into another experience of being faithful. A disciple in the etymological sense of one who follows a master. Discipline, that Roman discipline, is one who follows a rule. And that was abandoned halfway into the inferno. And now he becomes a disciple in the real etymological sense of one who follows a a master. And he will be that until the end of purgatory when when Virgil says to him, now, guess what? You can follow your own desire. Once you pass through the purgatorial process, and and slough off all of that funny business, you can follow your own heart. You need neither the rules nor the masters. But that is the progress that's that he's undergoing here. You see. Well, so Virgil understands what Kate. Uh, understands what Cato has said. And he says, Okay, we must now he says to Dante, Son, follow in my steps. Let us go back down the hill. Echo of what happened in the inferno, the first of the inferno. No, we must go down first. This is the point at which the plane slopes down to reach its lowest bounds. He has, he says, We must go all the way to the bottom of the Purgatorial Mountain. And then start up. Down to that inner tidal place. And then there's this beautiful passage We made our way across the lonely plain, like one returning to a lost pathway, who till he finds it seems to move in vain. Now there will be times I both hope and trust and in some ways fear uh, in the next 12 weeks when we will have to say to ourselves, we made our way across the lonely plain like one returning to a lost pathway who till he finds it seems to move in vain. And it's part of what's being tested here is the ability to move even though it seems to be in vain. To move across that lonely plain even though it seems to be moving in vain. John of the Cross in The Dark Night of the Soul says, You know, there comes this moment When you try to pray and it seems like sawdust and you try to meditate and it's boring and tedious and and you you go to Mass or whatever it is you do and it all seems so dull and so boring. And John of the Cross says, Be bored by it, but don't stop doing it. They go down and he has his face washed, it's the dew, symbolic of grace. Gets washed up a little bit, and then and I want to hang on this line and come back to it in a minute, there just as pleased another, he girt me. He put the cord around me, the not the cord but the, the reed. And the reed regenerate. Question it one, I, I'll throw this out just as What does it mean that the reed regenerate? What does any of this mean? The answer is, any particular image or narrative means the most moving thing we can imagine it to mean. In Canto 2, he sees the angel boatman coming. He doesn't see it. At first, it's just this white light shooting across the the waters. And Virgil says to him, see how much scorn he has for human means. This, This angel has these great angelic wings tipped, pointed at the sky, and is just streaking across the sea. Not paddling the oars, you know, or flapping ba- the wings. Just, And the point is, see how much scorn he has for human means. It's a very Pauline understanding. But it's very precisely placed. It is the understanding that purgatory is not works righteousness, what the Protestants call works righteousness. Purgatory does not mean that I put in my time and get my ticket punched. See how much scorn he has for human means. And more than a hundred souls come out of this boat. In exitu Israel de Egypto. with what is written after that after of that psalm all these spirits sang as with one voice and that psalm i think it's 95 it's the great passover psalm and the first line is when israel came out of egypt it's so perfect that it's here left in left in in its uh, original form so perfect that it's here because it's it is the paradigm it is the biblical paradigm old and new testament when israel went out of egypt that is what it's all about that is what it is all about that is what purgatory is all about and it's interesting that dante has picked this because dante wrote to his one of his patrons con grande and he said to him i must tell you when you read this poem it looks like one poem. Notice that he says, they sang this as with one voice. It seems like one poem. He wrote to Con Grande and he says, it's, in fact, it's several poems happening at once. It's Polysemus," he said. That means it has, it has layers of meaning. The foremost obvious layers, he said, let me describe." He said, "Let me take a psalm, Psalm 95, when Israel came out of Egypt. He says that means literally when the Hebrew people came up out of Egypt. It also has analogical meanings. It means being redeemed by Christ. It also means morally to be converted from sin to grace. And anagogically or mystically it means to leave the corrupt world for eternal life. So he says. You can be reading along this poem. You can just con- you can consult it on any of these registers or octaves. You know, wherever you happen to be, you can just go consult it at any of those levels, and it speaks at each each image, each metaphor, each narrative speaks at, at any of those levels. The this now is a very delicate and in many ways dangerous state. This is the liminal state, the in between state, the threshold place. The place in the Hindu tradition between incarnations. See, the place where, the, where one is neither this nor that. The old life is gone. And the new life is not yet. And nobody wants to live in that place. That is, the, that is what we all try to avoid. That nowhere place. What the English monk called the cloud of unknowing. Nobody wants to go through the cloud of unknowing and all these souls have landed on the Purgatorial At the base of the Purgatorial Mountain and they are in that cloud The crowd that had that he had left along the beach seemed not to know the place They looked about like those whose eyes try out things new to them And they say to Virgil and Dante show us how to get up this mountain and Virgil says we're strangers too. So no immediate help. What do you do when you're in that liminal place and there's no immediate help? Somebody tell me what to do please. Will will my spouse, will my boss, will my therapist, will my spiritual counselor, will somebody please tell me what to do? Can I throw the I Ching? Can I consult my horoscope? What am I going to do? No help. What happens in that place? Notice what happens. The souls who noticing my breathing, see Dante is still alive, sensed that I was still a living being, then out of astonishment turned pale. And just as people crowd around the messenger, who bears an olive branch to hear his news and no one hesitates to join the crush. So here those happy spirits, all of them stared hard at my face just as if they had forgotten to proceed to their perfection. All of a sudden, out of this listlessness, lifelessness, in-between place, where, nobody, where one doesn't know what to do or where to go, all of a sudden, there's a person who is alive, who has some kind of spirit going in and out. Right? Oh, man! And they all become groupies. (laughs) Oh, vicariously, you see. Notice, for them, who have left this life and are going to perfection, what they are attracted to is the past they are atta- attracted to the kind of life that is now over for them. It is regressive, but it is life. They found someone vital in the midst of that unknowing that uncertainty and they glom onto him It's as though when w- in confusion we find some person who's vital diverted by his energies. One of the things I think is pointing out here and he will in a few minutes again is that he doesn't want to do that to us. John Keats talks about he says Keats says in his letter to his to his brothers one time he said that I have I've discovered something that distinguishes the great from the non-great. And he says this, it is the thing which Shakespeare has supremely and he calls it negative capability. And he describes it this way. When a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. Well, now that is a corollary to this condition, you see. To be able to be in that mystery and confusion and uncertainty and cloud of annoying without grabbing for straws. Dante says, I saw one of those spirits moving forward in order to embrace me. And, of course, they try to embrace and it turns out this is a spirit. And he, Dante can't get his arms around him because it's just a spirit. He withdrew. Gently, he said, I could now stand back. Then I knew who he was and I beseeched him to remain, wa- uh, remain a while and talk with me. And it was Casella, his old dear friend, who had in Dante's, who had earlier set Dante's verses to music. And so Dante says to Casella, if there's no new law that denies you memory or practice of the songs of love that used to quiet all my longings, then may it please you with those songs to solace my soul somewhat, for having journeyed here together with my body, it is weary. And Casella starts to sing, and the first line of the song is, love that discourses to me in my mind. And that's the first line ...of a poem of Dante's... ...which he commented upon in the Convivio... ...Dante commented upon the Convivio... ...and it is a poem that Casella in fact set to music... ...then... ...okay, so he began to sing it... ...and Dante says... ...sang so sweetly... ...that I still hear that sweetness... ...sound in me... ...my master, I, and all that company... ...around the singer seemed so satisfied as if no other thing might touch our minds. We all were motionless and fixed upon the notes. This is the same song, second verse. All those souls were fixed upon Dante. Scene changes. Now Dante, Virgil, and everybody are fixed upon Casella, singing this beautiful song. Love that discourses to me in my mind. In the Convivio, Dante analyzed the poem. And he says the lady in that poem, to which the love poem is dedicated, is lady philosophy. And the, and what attracted Dante to the poem was its sound, its, its sweet sound. He talks about the sweet sound of the verses. And so this poem, I think, is representative here of philosophy and art, the, the verbal art, poetic art. And when Dante hears it, he falls into a kind of a swoon. It's as though, it's as though uh, everything in his life is tied up in this issue. Love that discourses to me in my mind. And the important thing to note is that this poem is resu- is the creative result of Dante's own struggles to sublimate and transform the leopard. Dante transformed that lust in his own life through philosophy and love poetry. Those, Those were the two ways in which Dante transformed that energy that was lust. So what we have here is the spiritual descendant of the leopard. And the spiritual descendant of the leopard is Casella. And he is still arresting the journey. Arresting Arresting the journey. Immediately, Cato says, when all at once, or, or the poem says, when all at once the grave old man cried out, What have we here, you laggard spirits? What negligence, what lingering is this? Quick to the mountain to cast off the slough that will not let you see God show himself. Dante is critiquing this position. In other words, the creative solution to the last problem has become the problem. Ain't it so? The creative solution to the last problem is now the problem that is now the place where I'm stuck. The leopard has become Casella singing a lovely song. It's no longer this ravenous lusty, you know, cra- craving. It's this beautiful, philosophical, and artistically sublime poem set to music, and he's stuck there. The point is not to get caught up in that aesthetic experience. It has become an aesthetic experience. Kierkegaard comes in on this, you know. Not to get caught up in that. Not, and and also, of course, Dante's enjoying his own past achievements in a certain way. How nicely I have transformed that lust into a lovely little song. Robert Duncan, Duncan the same American poet I spoke of earlier, said, "For the poet to languish now in the beauty or the good or the truth of what he has done in the past, or to lose his way as he works in rehearsing old inspirations of his art, is to chew grace like a cud." <laughs> Why does he need a Stoic? A Roman Stoic? He needs a Roman Stoic to cut through that. To look at that with a cold eye. This is a guy for whom Marcia doesn't mean anything anymore. Now he's not going to get into heaven. You can't get into heaven being that way. But you can be of use in the divine economy. <laughs> you can cause somebody else to break... Yes, like, like pigeons. They all fly up the hills. So I want to just reflect for a minute on this condition because Dante is warning us. This poem that he's writing has a lot more power than Casella's song to do to us what Casella's song did to him. In other words, we could come around this poem and just enjoy its aesthetic quality, but that's not what it's there for. And I want to read two poems that have to do with the breakthrough from the aesthetic appreciation into this other realm, the realization that the purgatorial mountain is still to be climbed. And and you may know both of these. You almost undoubtedly know the first one. It's Rilke's poem, The Archaic Torso of Apollo. There he is, walking around this great statuary with the head lopped off. We cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit. And yet, his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside like a lamp, in which his gaze, now turned to low, gleams in all its power. Otherwise, the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise... This stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast fur, would not from all the borders of itself burst like a star, for here there is no place that does not see you, you must change your life. All of a sudden. He's there at the base of the Purgatorial Mountain caught up in that aesthetic experience. And the aesthetic experience goes deep enough to remind him that he must change his life. Just exactly what's happening here. And the other one is James Wright's poem Lying in a Hammock at William Duffy's Farm in Pine Island, Minnesota. Over my head... I see the bronze butterfly asleep on the black trunk blowing like a leaf in green shadow. Down the ravine behind the empty house the cowbells follow one another into the distances of the afternoon. To my right in a field of sunlight between two pines the droppings of last year's horses blaze up into Golden Stones. I, I want to finish the poem, but I have to stop there. <laughs> Remember what Robert Duncan said about chewing grace like a cud? You know, visiting one's former inspirations, one's you know the droppings of last year's horses blaze up into golden stones, don't they? <laughs> I lean back as the evening darkens and comes on. A chicken hawk floats over looking for home. I have wasted my life. Well, I think that that word looking for home is what drives it home to him. I've wasted my life. Well, those are in keeping with this scene in Canto Two of the Purgatorio, where Dante has to be awakened out of that. And he's telling us, do likewise. Don't experience this poem at the aesthetic level because this poem represents a depiction of a way of salvation. Not the only way of salvation, but a way of salvation. The way of what? Charles, Charles Williams calls it the romantic way. He says Dante's the only person that ever really followed it through. Even though a lot of people use the term. And and uh, I'm particularly fond of Jefferson Butler. Fletcher calls it the way of size. <sighs> that kind of thing. The way of size. In La Vita Nuova, Dante said that a new intelligence, intelligenza nova comes from a weeping heart, the way we would understand that I think best would be that a new consciousness is born in a broken heart. What does new, Where do you get new consciousness? Dante says, a broken heart. That is the way of the great transformation. That is what's leading Dante through the purgatorial processes. And so Charles Williams says, we can derive aesthetic pleasure from the poem without ourselves deciding if Dante's way is possible or not. But we shall hardly grow adults without deciding whether the way of size is really the way to new consciousness or not. And for me, the most startling of all is the last one. The new company came, they left the song behind, turned toward the slope. And notice what that means now. They left the song behind, turned towards the slope. Like those who go and yet do not know where. You see, we, if we're there, we say, now where's the path? They asked Dante and Virgil, where's the path? How do we get there? And having no obvious directions, they got caught up in Casella's song. And then Cato snuck up on them and said, boo. And they made paths. <laughs> you see? Like those who go and yet do not know where. That is such an important line here. Canto 1 ended or virtually ended on the line that he just as pleased another, he girt me round with the new belt. And this canto ends, they left a song turned towards the slope like those who go and yet do not know where. The epilogue to the Gospel of John, Jesus queries Uh, Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And then he says to Peter, I tell you most solemnly, when you were young, you put on your own belt and walked where you liked. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will put a belt around you and take you where you would rather not go like those who go and yet do not know where. Somebody once wrote, I'm thinking it's William Stafford, but I'm not sure who it was. Somebody once wrote uh, that time makes a faint sound as it passes, and if you're quiet enough, you can hear it. I was always fond of that. Well, Dante has uh, something that hints of that same mood, at least, at the beginning of Canto Eight. He says, it was the hour that turns seafarers' longings homeward, the hour that makes their hearts grow tender upon the day they bid sweet friends farewell, the hour that pierces the new traveler with love when he has heard far off the bell that seems to mourn the dying of the day. The hour, repeated three times, it is the hour, it is the hour, it is the hour. One thinks of the Gospel of John, the hour has come. It is the hour, it is the hour, it is the hour, and the bell that seems to mourn the dying of the day. seems to me that what's symbolized here is a leaving of a stage of life behind. And this seafarer in the metaphor here is, 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 is nostalgic momentarily as the day is coming to an end and he remembers all those he is leaving. He remembers the life he is leaving. And it seems as though something is dying, the dying day. And, of course, the perennial spiritual problem is how to stay on that journey, even though it means leaving some former stage of adaptation behind. There is, I think, in the text here, a palpably slower world that's being entered into, and one which is more reflective and more in touch with solitude. So it is not but it's not just leaving the active life for the contemplative life. That would have been the medieval understanding of the necessary what Jung, when Jung talks about the first and second half of life, for the medieval mind they, they would have regarded that same dilemma as the as the movement from the active to the contemplative life, which was which was the natural shift in midlife to to move from the active to the contemplative. But it seems to me that there's more than that involved because it is leaving behind perhaps the world of a socially enhanced identity. Notice that he's leaving all his friends behind. And this part of the sense of solitude uh, and mystery comes from the fact that he had no longer has those, those uh, identity reinforcements around him. In the Charity translation of verses 13 to 15, I'll use them, they're not that different from the ones of Mendelbaum's, but I want to use them. Telusis Ante swelled from him, that's the first, first words of a hymn, swelled from him so sweetly, with such devotion, and so pure a tone, my senses lost the sense of self completely. So again, you have this entering into this a uh, place of undefinedness, a kind of metanoia. The word is men- mende in the Italian, meaning I lost my mind. My mind shifted. My sense of my who I was melted away a little bit. And the hymn that's being sung is the is the uh, the hymn at the close of day. And the first words are to thee before the light is done. And for me the mood set here again is one of a, a is the passing of one stage of life. And the and the people who are noted in this part of the purgatory, uh, the vestibule of purgatory, are the negligent rulers, those who have been preoccupied with the business of governing, and have let their the state of their own souls Uh, uh, fall into uh, negligence and so they have died uh, been saved in the nick of time by a tardy uh, confession of their sins or a tardy uh, 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 regard for their condition of their souls but Dante has more in mind than that and he tells us this is a rare thing it happens occasionally in Divine Comedy But when it happens, we have to take note of it. When Dante winks at the reader and says, take a closer look, in uh, Canto 8, verses 19 and following, he says, Here, reader, let your eyes look sharp at truth, for now the veil, the veil is his set of metaphors, the veil has grown so very thin, it is not difficult to pass within. Well, he said it wasn't difficult. I spent all week trying to do it. Actually, I spent a lot longer than that. Uh, And then he goes on. I saw that company of noble spirits, silent and looking upward, pale and humble, as if in expectation. And I saw emerging and descending from above two angels bearing flaming swords, of which the blades were broken off without their tips. Their garments, just as green as newborn leaves, were agitated, fanned by their green wings, and trailed behind them. I'll mention this and we'll come back to it. The green is a a symbol of hope. The green, as of newborn leaves, is a symbol of hope. And so here come the angels. And now it's as though the actors in a drama are taking their place. And there's a sense that it's all prearranged. Both come from Mary's bosom, said Sordello. The the poet Sordello is leading them through this realm. Both come fr- both these angels come from Mary's bosom, said Sordello, to serve as the custodians of the valley against the serpent that will soon appear. It's all prearranged. The serpent will soon appear. It reminds I once went to Carlsbad Cavern and I was struck by the fact that the park ranger or whoever he was, there's a big amphitheater there. They used to this is years ago. Uh, right at the mouth of the cave, uh, and everybody gathers a certain time. And the ranger comes out there, and he looks at his watch, and he says, "Well, the bats should be coming out in about a minute." <laughs> I thought, "What in the world?" And sure enough, here they came. Well, likewise here, Sordello says, "This is everybody's taking their place, and it'll the drama is about to begin." So this is not some, you know, startling. Intrusion into this, this is is absolutely a range. In fact, it's choreography. One gets the sense that something is being choreographed. And then the question is why and for whom. My avid eyes were steadfast, staring at that portion of the sky where stars are slower, even as spokes when they approach the axle. And, And my guide, sun... What are you staring at? And I replied, I'm watching those three torches with which this southern pole is all aflame. Three new stars. Then he to me, the four bright stars you saw this morning now are low beyond the pole. And where those four stars were, these three now are. Again, the shift in life. The four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, have to do with the active life, the secular life. And they have now gone below the horizon. And what looms up are the three cardin- the three uh, theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. So again, a symbol of some shift that's taking place. Even as Virgil spoke, this is later on, even as Virgil spoke, Sordello drew him to himself, See there, our adversary, he said, and then he pointed with his finger at the unguarded edge of that small valley where there was a serpent, similar perhaps to that which offered Eve of the bitter fruit food. Through the grass and flowers the evil streak advanced. From time to time it turned its head and licked its back like any beast that preens and sleeks. I did not see and therefore cannot say just how the hawks of heaven made their move, but I indeed saw both of them in motion. Hearing the green wings cleave the air, the serpent fled, and the angels wheeled around as each of them flew upward back to his high station. And the drama's over. There you have it. Curtain comes down on that performance of it. Now what has happened? What has happened? That's all that's said. If we go back to those earlier lines, Dante says, I saw that company of noble spirits, silent and looking upward, pale and humble as if in expectation. The Italian is quasi aspettando, and this aspettando has about it the same the same uh, nuance that the spanish word esperar has which is it means both to wait and to hope to wait and to hope and the green of the angel's wings and trappings is underscores again this message of hope that is in this and of course hope is one of the theological virtues now these are the rulers of the world. That is to say, these are the activists. These are these are those who have spent their lives saving the world. Okay, so we can bring it into our own. These are those who have spent their lives going out to save the world. And here comes the snake, not as not as a temptation in a, in a sort of a way, but. Not as much of a temptation as it is a kind of morality play, a kind of uh, a kind of training for them. I think what I'm offering is is, is, is an interpretation on this' you, it's not this is not the final word I hope you understand on this on this canto. If I have spent my life trying to save the world before I can begin the purgatorial process, I must undergo a kind of retraining of my instincts. In light of this symbolism, I'm, I'm saying that as a declarative sentence. And the retraining of my instincts is that when I see the adversary, I do not react. And I do not, I do not suit up in my suit of armor and get on my charger and go get it. You see. It is not to respond that way. So he says, they were silent, looking upward, pale and humble. And they did not move when they saw the adversary. Under the dispensation of the cardinal virtues, one would immediately react to the adversary, perhaps. But under the dispensation of the theological virtues, this is not a. This is not to say that that the active uh, uh, resistance of evil is not appropriate in a certain play, but this is this is the a little play which is. Underscoring the biblical injunction of resist not evil. Not because evil must not be overcome, but so as to allow to emerge into one's life other forces over which one is not in control. It, it's almost, if there's a temptation here, it is the temptation by the snake to invite an attack. The snake comes and it says, for instance, from time to time it turned its head and licked its back like any beast that preens and sleeks. Now, if you're nervous, nervous about this snake, remember that, I should have brought it. You Remember that D.H. Uh, Lawrence poem about the snake? It's when the snake turned and started going back into the hole that he picked up the log and threw at it. If you're nervous about this, if there's any one moment when you might jump, you know, and grab the weapon, it would be when he turns around, it's not looking, and it's just preening. And that's the moment of temptation. Now I can just do away with it. And what these save the world types in this... By the way, I am a save the world type, so don't get me wrong. That's why I I, I know where I speak. Uh, While those who have ruled and neglected their own souls sit there not reacting, they get this drama which displays to them this other power in the universe. And I think it informs them of something that a completely active life is is unaware of, that there is something else operating. But as Frost said in his, in his marvelous poem by the same title, how hard it is not to be king when it's in you and in the situation. <laughs> Huh? How hard it is not to be king when it's in you and in the situation.